Welcome to the Better Money, Better World Show, a podcast project of Impact Capital Managers, or ICM. ICM is a group of investors who believe that by solving the world's greatest challenges, we will generate market-leading returns for investors while bending the arc of human history towards sustainability and justice. ICM members have backed companies ranging from Tesla to Coursera to Vital Farms. Collectively, ICM's 60 members manage over $12 billion. I'm your host, Daniel Pianco, a co-founder of ICM. My day job is co-founder and managing director of Achieve Partners, a leading investor in education and human capital. Here on Better Money, Better World, we'll explore the stories of our investor members, the companies we're building, and the limited partners allocating money to investors who don't just seek alpha, but also to leverage their capital to build a better world. Episodes will be released each week and feature a new guest telling their own unique investment stories, strategies, and perspectives. And we've got lots of great guests lined up. So if you're excited about what this show might teach you about impact investing and the people behind it, make sure you subscribe to Better Money, Better World, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're feeling generous, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to highlight the work of impact investors and grow the community of impact investing. Now, with that out of the way, let me introduce you to our Better Money, Better World guests. Arif Nakhvi used the language of impact investing to attract luminary limited partners like the Gates Foundation, CDC Group, Bank of America, the U.S. government, Hamilton Lane, and countless others. Governments, billionaires, and the Davos crowd flocked to Nakhvi's vision of transforming the developing world through impact investing but it was all a fraud. For almost a decade, the leading global impact investing firm was the Abraj Group. Nakvi was the founder, CEO, and key man of Abraj. Bill Gates fell victim and invested $100 million of a $1 billion fund to build hospitals and healthcare institutions across Africa. But truth was stranger than fiction. Nakvi fleeced investors of hundreds of millions of dollars to support his lifestyle, rather than the vision of enlightened capitalism that he spouted from almost every one of capitalism's elite stages. In their new book, The Key Man, Simon Clark and Will Lausch write the definitive history about how Nakvi rose from humble beginnings in Pakistan to being one of the great financial fraudsters of the last decade. The subhead of the book is the true story of how the global elite was duped by a capitalist fairy tale. Today's guest, Simon Clark, covers financial fraud for the Wall Street Journal. Clark catalogs the language used by Nakvi to convince some of the world's most influential investors to contribute capital to drive UN and global development objectives. Clark developed a healthy skepticism toward impact investing, and his book challenges some of our fundamental assumptions about impact investing and how to ensure the transparency required for impact investing to live up to its promise of stakeholder capitalism. The conversation with Simon Clark is important as it forces impact investors to wrestle with the potential underbelly of the enlightened capitalism we preach. Buy the book and listen as Clark describes the dark side of impact investing and what practitioners can do to achieve capitalism's fairy tale and make good on our promise to our investors and ourselves. Welcome, Simon Clark, author of The Key Man to the Better Money, Better World podcast. Thanks so much for making the time. Thanks for having me, Daniel. So um, if you could, first of all, paint the picture for me, what was Abraj in 2017 and what was the scope of its influence? So in 2017, Abraj was at the the peak of its influence and and scope. It was the 
largest emerging markets private equity firm, and it was raising $6 billion for what would have been the largest emerging markets private equity fund. Um, and uh, the firm and its executives sat at the center of a, a global network of relationships and contacts with politicians, billionaires, pension funds, banks, that made it an important part of the financial system in the interface between North America and Europe and developing countries across Africa, Southern Asia, and Latin America. Can you throw out some names? Who was who associated with this, this group? Bill Gates was a, a big and famous investor in Abraj. He had committed uh, $100 million of his foundation's money to create the Abraj Healthcare Fund, which was a billion-dollar fund to invest in building and buying clinics and hospitals in Africa and South Asia. Uh, Bank of America was an investor, the Washington State Pension Fund and pension funds for the state of Louisiana, Texas and Hawaii were investors. John Kerry was in fairly regular contact with executives at Abraj and was considering joining the firm after his, uh, his time as Secretary of State. So, and then they, were, they were, had many contacts with, with politicians across Africa and Asia, uh, as well as investors from all around the world. And the person behind all this was Arif Nakvi. Who was he, what drove him, and what got him to this place? So Arif Nakvi is the, the, the founder of Abraj, um, and he, he's a very charismatic and a very intelligent man who grew up in Karachi, a giant city in southern Pakistan. He studied at London School of Economics, and then he, he had jobs in various places. He, 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 he worked at Arthur Anderson as an accountant, and then for a brief period at American Express in, in Karachi before joining the company of a, a very wealthy Saudi individual, Alayan. Um, and then in 1994, he, he moved to Dubai and he started his own investment firm, Capola. And there he, he started investing um, on behalf of other investors as well as himself. Um, and he founded Abraj in 2002. And he did some very successful deals. He, the firm grew very rapidly as, a, as, a, as an investment firm in the Middle East initially, and then it expanded beyond that. Now, now you basically reported on this all being a huge fraud and, and a massive explosion uh, to the negative. Was there a moment in time when you were starting your reporting on this when you said the rabbit hole is so much deeper than anyone could have possibly imagined? Uh, yes. So the I, I first interviewed Arif in Dubai in late 2007. I was I was in the city to write a magazine feature, and Arif was one of the the rising stars of the the business world there. 
um, and I talk, we write about this in the book. Um, and I didn't have much to, to do about writing about Abrage for the, in, the, in the decade that followed, although I was often writing about private equity. So this story for, for us started at the Wall Street Journal in January 2017, um, when my co-writer, Will Louch, received an anonymous email saying there were problems at Abrage. Um, Will told me about the, the email and his back and forth with this person, um, as he no knew that I'd written about Abrage in the past and knew a lot of people there. And initially, the anonymous email, the person behind this email was saying that one of the senior executives was leaving, which isn't like the biggest story in a journalist's life. But then this person said that $200 million had gone missing from the healthcare fund and the investors, including the Gates Foundation, would like to know where their money was. And so that did start to sound like a very interesting story. Uh, because money doesn't go missing from private equity funds every day, or at least it's not supposed to. And the first article that we wrote, which was published on February the 2nd, 2017, was but was saying that investors in Abraj's healthcare fund are investigating whether their money had been misappropriated or not. That was basically the gist of the story. It was actually tremendously hard to get that story published because um, Abraj forcefully denied it to us when we went to speak to them, like, what's going on? We have that. It's important to, to just say here that while the information initially came from an anonymous email from someone whose identity we do not know, because we didn't know who was sending that email, we could not use that email to write an article. So what we had to do then in January was go and talk to as many people as possible to, to find out whether it was true and verify that information with multiple sources before publishing. So while this anonymous email gave us the tip-off, it wasn't actually the source material for the article. We had to go and get that from half a dozen other people um, who confirmed that this was true. Uh, and then we were able to publish. While we were doing that reporting, um, Arif was attending the World Economic Forum in Davos. And he was, he was a participant on a on a televised panel about global healthcare with Bill Gates. So while we were assessing this information about whether Abraj had stolen money from the Gates Foundation and the World Bank and other major investors, we could see that Arif was like being broadcast globally by the World Economic Forum in debate with Bill Gates. And that was a that was quite a bizarre moment. So anyway, the story was published on the second of February two thousand seventeen. We didn't really know what was going to happen then, uh, but what 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 happened was that all of Abraj's investors and banks started picking up the phone and calling Abraj and asking Arif and his colleagues what on earth was going on. Um. And that was the start of a, a crazy year of reporting where more and more events just kept unfolding. So we were told that there was 
problem with money missing from another branch fund, which we broke the news of, and then that there was money missing from another fund. And we just kept having to report and, 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 and unravel this story as this firm unraveled. Um, we didn't know what was going to happen after we published that first story because maybe there was an explanation or maybe there was just a problem in this fund and it would have been solved and then a barrage would have carried on. But that's clearly not what happened. It just went down a big rabbit hole, as you said. So, so Nakvi was known as sort of the preeminent impact investor at the time, right? On all these panels with all these important people. How do you think the fact that he was so focused on impact investing allowed him to perpetrate this kind of a fraud? Well, it's important to state that Arif maintains his innocence and he has he's had his extradition trial. He's in the United Kingdom. But uh, okay, the- ignore the fraud, but clearly there was an explosion here. So so what you know, what about the fact that he was so focused on impact investing and leading this charge about, you know, changing the nature of capitalism? And yet here he was uh, overseeing a, a, an organization that clearly had some significant issues. Well, just to go back to what I was saying, the six Abraj executives have been criminally indicted by the United States Department of Justice, and two of them have now pleaded guilty. Um, and the Dubai Financial Services Authority has fined Abraj $315 million for misleading investors. So there's, and then there's all the evidence that we've gathered. And then separately, there's the evidence that the US, the DOJ and the SEC have gathered and put out there. So there's, you know, there's, there's a lot going on here. Um, But Arif says he's innocent. Um, So to answer your question, when we started to write a timeline of what had happened at Abraj, and we were gathering huge amounts of information because we had very well-placed sources within Abraj and at its investors and elsewhere who wanted the truth to get out and they felt that the truth was not getting out. And so they trusted us to tell the story of what was going on. We're very grateful to those people for helping us. Now, as we gathered that information, one of the first things we did was start writing a timeline, just dates and things that were happening on those dates. And this ended up building into a document of like well over like 70,000 words. It's almost a book on its own. And the amazing pattern that started to emerge was that, that Arif and his colleagues were regularly speaking in public and they would make very impressive speeches about how they had the highest governance standards, they never paid bribes, they, they, they were a force for good in the world in, in so many ways. And then as we started to receive internal emails from Abraj, we could find that on, you know, days when they were giving speeches like this, they were also ordering money to be siphoned out of investor funds. So there was this whiplash in our minds between what they were saying on a Tuesday and what they were doing on the same Tuesday. And this went on month after month, year after year. And 
And it was really quite extraordinary. So the fact that a barrage is, it evolved into from a private equity firm doing leverage buyouts in the Middle East to being a global impact investment firm, which said it could make profits for investors at the same time as solving social, environmental problems for humanity, meant that Arif and his colleagues developed this language, this narrative based in virtue and ethics, as well as finance. And they were very good at it. And a lot of people believed it. Um, it turns out that it wasn't always true. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. You know, here's this person draping himself in impact investing, ESG, and under the table doing the exact opposite. If if you were to recommend to LP limited partners of good faith and sort of investors who want to invest their capital in a pro-social way, what should they have done differently in the Abraj fiasco? Well, they should have done the basic due diligence better. I mean, I don't think it was as hard as some of those investors might say it was to identify problems in Abraj's funds. I, they don't, the investors don't really want to talk about it. And I kind of have a problem with them not wanting to talk about it, especially those investors who are investing your and my tax dollars. I mean, if there's public funds going into a barrage, taxpayer funded organizations investing in this firm because the firm says it's going to help make the world a better place, they should talk about it when it goes wrong as well as when it goes right. But one thing that investors have said to me is, look, we were trusting audited accounts. We were deceived. What could we have done? I think they could have done a lot. They could have done better due diligence. There were people who were picking up problems at Abraj over the years, lower down in the hierarchy of various organizations, and often they were silenced. I mean, one of Abraj's tricks was that whenever issues were raised, they would call the top of the organizations and say, it's outrageous that your subordinate is questioning us. How dare they? And often the heads of the organizations would slap down the juniors. And that's just outrageous. I mean, that happened at the IFC. And kind of happened at Proparco. I mean, we write about it in the book, which is a French development finance organization. Arif tried to do that to Andrew Farnham, who was at the Gates Foundation. And Andrew Farnham is a, seems to me to be a very high integrity person who actually identified problems at Abraj and voiced it and wouldn't shut up. And uh, Arif complained to his superior his his seniors his bosses at the gates foundation and rather than telling andrew farnham to to stop it they the 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 people at the top of the gates foundation told him to continue with his investigation and i think that was possibly the beginning of the end for barrage when that started happening in late 2016 was andrew the hero of the story so andrew did his job properly and the the here the closest we get to heroism in this story turns out to be people doing their jobs properly. It was it is shocking how many people were not 
doing their jobs properly in investment firms, accounting firms, legal firms around the world. Um, I have a very high opinion of, of Andrew Farnham. I think there are other people who deserve a lot of praise and I can't tell you who they are because they're our sources and they don't want to be disclosed because for various reasons, like they're scared, they think there might be a legal blowback on them. There's also a couple of civil servants in Pakistan who tried to stand up to a massive amount of pressure they were receiving from abroad and politicians who I have a lot of respect for as well. You know, it's interesting just how many people were asleep at the switch here. I mean, you talked about lawyers and investors and auditors and journalists. I mean, what what group deserves the most blame? Well, it's not my job to be a judge and jury. I'm an investigative journalist, and this is a book that is a work of investigative journalism, not opinion. So I'm reluctant to sort of point fingers, uh, but KPMG did a lot of auditing work for a barrage and either they uh, they they miss some big problems which is raises questions about their uh, their work or, or or there's some other explanation and KPMG in the UAE there, there are lawsuits against KPMG from a barrage's liquidators and investors yeah, as someone who manages money, uh, I can't imagine doing half the things you described in your book without getting caught six different ways till Sunday, in- including having some of our investors send in forensic auditors just as regular course. One person wrote in in response to your book that the Abraj scandal um, you know, developed in the Arab world where there are a lot of uh, these types of events that, that happened, some very public. Do you think there were cultural elements to the scandal that are in, in endemic to UAE and other places like that? There are frauds and scandals all over the world. The US has more than its fair share of them, and, and so does the UK. I mean, there is a there is a global problem of fraud and, and of law enforcement and regulators struggling to, to keep up with it. So I think this is a this is a global issue. Um, in the Middle East, yes, there have been big problems there, and and Abraj is one of them. It is hard to find information out about what's going on in in funds in in in, in the Middle East. There's, yes, there is a that's not an easy thing to do. The Abraj was like a United Nations of finance. There were people working there from all over the world. I don't think we can explain what has happened based on where the people can't come from. I think that this is a global issue. So that's that that's a tricky question to answer, really. And do you think that some of the reason why people didn't ask as many probing questions was because of the the talk around impact that uh, Nafi was so successful at making? Yeah, I mean, Arif, he, he's from Pakistan. He's from a developing country. He did not like the term emerging markets. He preferred the term growth markets. And in these countries are both emerging markets and growth markets, right? Um, 
often in his speeches, he would point the finger at the West, saying that Americans or Brits can be judgmental or prejudiced, saying that there's a lot of risk and a lot of corruption in countries in Africa or South Asia. And he's right. Sometimes Western people can be prejudiced, uh, but sometimes there are enormous problems of corruption in, in these parts of the world too. So it's not like a choice we need to make. Is the West prejudiced or are developing countries corrupt? Sometimes people in developing countries can be corrupt and sometimes people in the West can be prejudiced. It's not like one or the other is true. Um, sometimes they can both be true and sometimes neither of those statements can be true. Um, it, it does seem to me, and it has seemed to others, that, that Arif liked to point the finger at the West as a place where there are people who are biased and prejudiced and perhaps make people feel guilty if they were to say, well, but what happened in this situation here? Where did the money go? Uh, yeah, there might have been an element of that. It was almost like it was his way out to say, oh, you can't accuse me of the same corruption that is. is yeah, and one of the things he liked to say was, you know, people in the US like to say, or the UK like to say that developing markets, growth markets are really risky. But when we look at the global financial crisis of 2008, where did it start? It started in New York, bang in the center of the financial system. And he's right when he said that. But the fact that that statement was true doesn't mean that developing countries are therefore not risky. <laughs> There's lots of risk in developing countries and big banks investors in New York can do bad things or make mistakes as well. Bad, bad people everywhere. Um, but in your book, sorry, in London as well, of course. Not wanting to, <laughs> we will we, we'll keep the Queen's tongue uh, sacred. Um, in your book, you you're relatively cynical about impact investing overall, a little bit, and and part of the reason is because impact many impact investors charge the traditional two and twenty of private equity firms, and that um, it's impossible to be a pro social fund and, and create those kind of economics. Do you think that impact investing can be done uh, in a in a commercial in a, in the, uh, under the same commercial terms as traditional private equity? Yes, I do think it can be done. I I would say that I'm skeptical, not cynical. So, I, I lived in Pakistan in 1994 as a volunteer teacher. In 1996, I taught in the Gaza Strip. The United Nations runs schools and refugee camps there. So I had a personal experience early in my life of living with people who live on a few dollars a day. In 2000, I became a financial journalist. And as a financial journalist, you generally write about very large sums of money, billions of dollars and trillions of dollars. And it was a concern to me, having seen people live on a few dollars a day, that the financial world doesn't seem to know or care that those people existed. And there are billions of people who live on a few dollars a day. And that 
disconnect troubled me from 2000 onwards. And, you know, from 2000 and to 2008, the broad sort of theory of financial markets was uh, shareholder capitalism. You know, the right thing to do is maximize returns to investors. Then with the financial crash of 2008, people got a lot more thoughtful about global capitalism, including within the financial system. And this new theory known as stakeholder capitalism became much more popular where companies, investors, as well as thinking about making maximizing returns for shareholders, also become more aware of their obligations to employees and the communities where they operate. And Arif was a very early adopter of that theory. And that theory has now become very popular indeed. I mean, day after day, it seems more companies are adhering to the principles of ESG and impact investing. And I think that's in principle a great thing. I'm not skeptical or cynical of that. But I now have a new concern, which is whether or not firms are doing what they say. And one thing that concerns me about the impact investing community is to the extent they are saying we can solve poverty problems, I don't see any poor people involved in the conversation about impact investing. And I think this is a problem. The G7 task force for impact investing this week put out a press release about all the people on its various working groups. I mean, it it could be people from any Davos World Economic Forum uh, get-together. I mean, there's there's no people there who are poor. And, And if the purpose of impact investing is to solve or help solve poverty, then people who live on a few dollars should the day should be included in the process of working out how to deploy capital. I mean, if impact investing ends up being the usual suspects making money and telling everyone that they're doing it for everyone else's benefit, that's not very compelling. It's not really very different from what's been going on so far in the investing world. And so I think that the impact investing needs to be a bit more inclusive in the way it goes about figuring out what it wants to do. And when I start to see more inclusive conversations, I think I'll I'll believe more that something real and new can come out of this movement. Do you focus, you know, it's interesting, um, after the fall of Abraj, you would think it would have gone out of style, but in fact, to your point, many of the largest players are kind of Apollo, TPG, Bain have all found started these funds, and um, it's interesting. There, you know, a whole slew of funds that are smaller, more, you know, perhaps closer to what you're talking about. Um, but you have these lar- the bigger funds kind of coming in. Do you think that the Abrage collapse diluted or adversely impacted sort of good impact investing developing? Well, it did in 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 developing markets, in emerging markets, it's much harder for private equity firms to raise funds now. There's it really has spooked that market. There's a lot more requests for due diligence. It's harder to raise money. 
But you're you're right that more broadly and in, in, in the US impact investing is going large in name. I mean, Apollo, all the big private equity firms are now raising impact funds. But I think we need to look really carefully again, what what, what are they saying and what are they doing? You know, is investing in a for-profit university really gonna help improve humanity's situation? Is it any different from private equity deals in the past? I mean, one thing is to say you're doing something great, and it's another thing to actually do something great. And that, when we look closely at that, the gap between what Abraj was saying and doing, it was, it was big. It may well be that actually there's a big gap between what other impact investors are saying and doing it may not be that they are committing fraud, but it may be just PR. So I've sort of come to this view of impact investing that the while it's a great movement in principle, and I wish everyone involved in it great success, the risks are that at best, if it goes bad, it's just PR. And at worst, it's fraud. So if you were to be king of the impact investing community for a day, having reported, done your reporting on a barrage, what would you do differently? Or what would you say every impact investing firm needs to do? Go and talk to the poorest, most disadvantaged people they can find who are in some way involved with the investments that they are making. Have the widest, biggest conversation possible. And, and, and value that information and let it factor into how decisions are made. It's interesting. You kind of uh, contrast impact investing to sort of government involvement and sort of the, 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 the answers actually democracy is getting involved. Um, many books have been written about failures of government funding of these projects and the like. How do you figure out where the line is between the perfect being the enemy of the good on the private sector versus the government sector? So the book isn't saying that we should do democracy instead of impact investing. That's not what we say. What We need to healthy democratic systems and healthy capital markets. It's, it's, it's both that are needed. It's not one or the other. The point we're making in, in, in the epilogue is that certain services can be provided by governments using taxpayer funds. So universal education can be provided by governments and is in many countries, including the United Kingdom. And universal healthcare can be provided by governments funded by taxpayers, as it is in the United Kingdom. I know that that's not the case in the United States. It could be. Um, and that could be the case in, in many countries around the world, including in Africa and, and Southern Asia. So in Pakistan, it's only like 2 3 or 4% of the population that pays income tax. That's a problem for Pakistan. If they were collecting more tax and spending that money in an intelligent, efficient way, then they could solve a lot of their problems 
in Pakistan without the need for foreign aid or foreign investment. Yeah, I mean, that's the point we're making about democracy in the epilogue, that in a healthy democracy, people can choose their governments and those governments can hopefully choose intelligent bureaucrats and managers to deploy taxpayer funds to provide healthful education services, <clears throat> which Abraj and other private equity firms are saying that they can provide for a fee using investor capital. Yes, private equity firms can provide valuable services, including in healthcare and education, but it's not the only way it can happen. We can also have governments provide these services. It's not one or the other. We need both. And often, Abraj and investment firms like it, who were big speakers at Davos, they do take make the argument to governments, stand aside, we can provide these services, thank you very much, better. And it's implication of that, it would be, so you don't need to tax us because we're going to provide the services. I mean, all, all, what we're saying in the book is that, yes, companies, investors play a very important role. So do governments. I mean, that, it's as simple as that, really. If you were to write the rules for impact investing to unleash the benefits of private capital into these markets, what would those rules look like? I think it would be healthy for impact investing firms if they were very public about their financial statements. I don't understand why there's so much secrecy around the accounts of many of these firms, especially if they're receiving funding from, from taxpayers. I mean, why shouldn't a Braj or any other private equity firm which is receiving hundreds of millions of dollars from the US government or UK government be transparent about its finances? I mean, if they were, it would be harder to hide wrongdoing. And okay, I don't think that the often firms say, oh, it's we're a commercially competitive market, we can't give this information away. Well, I think they could probably get, be more transparent about more information than they are at the moment. Do you think they also have to be transparent about their non-economic um, results, like how well they are at educating people or how well they are at healing the sick? Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, that's a huge growth area, isn't it? The whole measurement of impact. It's, it's a big, chaotic, interesting conversation that's going on. I mean, what's the best way to measure impact? And there are probably many good ways of measuring impact. But, but yeah, it also, it should be open for citizens and journalists, investors to say to firms, I'm have a question about how you measure your impact. And if you do have a question about how a firm measures impact or how it accounts for its finances, it seems to me unreasonable that you should re receive a response from the lawyer for the firms with a threat to sue you. I mean, and that often happens, believe it or not. And you know, if we're if impact investing is genuinely about improving the state of the world and providing public goods, then we should be able to have a grown-up conversation without threats of litigation. 
No, hopefully that never happens with a member of, uh, of, of Impact Capital Managers, which is committed to a lot of those principles of transparency. But how does it really happen frequently that beyond a barrage, do you get threatened when you talk to when you start digging into some of these firms? Uh, yes, but maybe um, I, there's a sort of I'm skewed in my sampling, right? As a, as a journalist, I'm asking difficult questions, but perhaps more frequently to firms that are trying to hide stuff than than the majority. So maybe maybe that's where I sometimes come across as cynical or or skeptical, because I'm sort of chasing things that have gone wrong rather than having an overview of the whole market. And 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 we need we need people to uh, like you to discover things like what happened at Abraj to protect the entire uh, industry. Do you think there's some element of a need for like the SEC to require ESG disclosures, for example, or the the US SEC? Uh, yes, and I think I think they are. I think they're starting I'm, to. Yeah. I'm starting to. I mean, Gary Gensler seems to be quite focused on this, and he's making some very interesting statements and speeches I, I think in general it's a great movement and it, you know i was quite troubled in like as as a as a young financial journalist from 2000 2008 that the investment world never really considered these issues didn't see it as their place and that was really disturbing to me so now that firms such as your own and, and others are explicitly stating we have these goals. I think that's an amazing thing. But now that that's happened, it's not like okay, well, I, I can give up. I don't need to be a journalist anymore. It's the the questions have changed. It's it's not the question is now to the firms. Okay, this is what you say you're wanting to do. How exactly are you going to do it? And and are you actually doing it? Is there room for the impact community to sort of police itself, or beyond? I'm I'm trying to suss out from you, um, having uncovered one of the greatest frauds uh, around our sector. You know, how could we as a community do a better job of policing ourselves, or working with government entities, or or or, or journalists to, to sort of not let this happen again? I think that the industry is working quite hard on that, in the sense that there is a a, a big conversation going on about measuring impact. And I do think that the people within the industry are best placed to decide on that. But as they're deciding that, they need to bring more people into the tent for the conversation. There's, you know, in my 21 years as a financial journalist, I've seen this tendency in finance that finance people like to have conversations amongst themselves and and then agree with what everyone is say, saying because they're having a conversation amongst people that they already agree with. I, I think finance industry needs to get more comfortable with inviting people who might not immediately agree into the conversation because that will make it more real. I mean, I find impact investing conferences and private equity conferences incredibly boring now because you don't ever really hear a real conversation. And that's because they seem to be mainly marketing-oriented events where people don't want to say anything controversial. I mean, believe it or not, 
15 years ago, private equity conferences were fascinating and, and often hilarious because it was an industry founded by real mavericks. And the founders of these firms, like you know David Bonderman or Steve Schwartzman or David Rubenstein, would, would turn up at a European private equity conference in 2006 they're in charge of their firms and they would say something fascinating, possibly outrageous, always very interesting, often quite funny. And I mean, you might not agree with them, but it was interesting. And, and that doesn't really happen anymore. So I'm not saying we necessarily need to go back to like, let's have new founders saying things for the sake of it. But we it would be good to see more conferences with a much more varied group of participants. And I think that would be healthy for the industry um, and, and, and help have ground the industry more in reality and make it more robust and stronger. Last question for you, because I, I really appreciate where you're coming from and, and the audience of people who listen to this are impact investors and limited partners. So I think your words will be well received. Um, if if you uh, ever stopped being a uh, investigative journalist for a minute and became the PR representative for the impact investing community, what would you advise? What what message would you project to sort of maximize the change that you want to see in the community uh, out to the world? Well, I haven't made that step into PR, which many journalists have. <laughs> So you're putting me out of my comfort zone. But in order to, to, to sort of do what I'm going to, about to preach, I would say to the industry, step out of the com- your comfort zones. If you sincerely believe that you are doing a form of finance that can change the world and make the world a better place, then take that message and speak and listen to people who are way outside your usual group of of interlocutors. Talk to the poorest people you can find, the furthest people you can find, the unlikeliest people you might think would be relevant. Listen to what they have to say. And it might turn out that one does things differently as a result of that. I think, I do think there are incredibly smart and well-meaning people in finance. The risk of finance is that it tends towards creating groups of insiders who increasingly become separated from the broader reality of the world and humanity. And the best way to have healthy, productive finance is for the finance people to be well connected, widely connected, richly connected to the to the whole of the community and the whole of the world. And I think journalists should be helping that process and conference organizers should be helping that process so that finance can really deliver on its promises, both financially and socially and environmentally. Simon, really appreciate you giving your advice and counsel here to an industry that's still very much developing. 
and very much hope that sustainable capitalism and, and a new form of stakeholder capitalism takes hold uh, more broadly and um, brings in more interlocutors. Uh, and I wish I could say that with a better British accent like yours uh, into the conversation. So thank you very much. Really appreciate your work and encourage everybody to uh, buy the book. It's a fascinating uh, survey of a dark time in our industry. Thank you very much, Daniel. This is Marika Spence, Executive Director of Impact Capital Managers. Better Money, Better World is made possible in part by ICM, a nonprofit network of over 60 best-in-class fund managers investing for superior returns and meaningful impact across North America and beyond. Our members share a passion for partnering with entrepreneurs and scaling companies that will realize a more resilient, equitable, and sustainable future. If you enjoyed today's conversation, tune in for the next episode of Better Money, Better World. Tell your friends and visit us online at www.impactcapitalmanagers.com.